I really want to thank Miro, one of the most useful tools. They sponsor this podcast. They are my go-to resource when it comes to working remotely and collaborating. They're also great for an office, but let me paint a picture for you. Everyone here is working from home in some capacity. Either we have peers that work from home, maybe we're part in the office, part out. Collaboration can be chaotic. Miro is the ultimate digital whiteboard and visual collaboration platform. You could be a remote team, you could be a creative agency, you could be a solopreneur. Miro allows you to brainstorm, plan, and execute seamlessly. Picture this, you're in a virtual meeting mapping out a huge project with Miro. You can drag and drop sticky notes, sketch wireframes, organize ideas all in real time. You collaborate with your team no matter where they are. This is a game changer. If you are ready to transform your workflow, you have to try Miro today. To show you how powerful it is, I created my own Miro board that you can check out at Miro.com slash success pod. It has a ton of resources for entrepreneurs, but it will also show you all the functionality of Miro. So go to Miro.com or go to Miro.com slash success pod for a ton of resources. Try Miro today. It's going to radically change how you collaborate with your team. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals who seek the best education and inspiration on how to grow a business. HubSpot Podcast Network hosts act as on-demand mentors to entrepreneurs, startups, and scale-ups through practical tips and inspiration inspirational stories. Listen, learn, and grow with the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. Today, I'm going to break down the story of Robinhood, the fintech company that just IPO'd and has billion dollar plus valuations. I'm going to walk you through their strategy for growth, how they took their product to market, and how they evolved as a company, some of the hurdles, some of the ethical and regulatory hurdles they went through on their rise to the top. This is a business case study. So today we're going to talk about Robinhood and how Robinhood basically made investing easy and accessible for everyone, which in it is a feat in and of itself. But let's break down how they actually did it. So what I want to do is I want to talk about the industry. I want to talk about the status quo. I want to talk about the Robinhood story. I want to talk about the founders, their revolutionary business model. And then I'm going to talk about after I go through the whole story and we talk about how they've grown and how they've gone through ups and downs and highs and lows. And there's been some positive. There's been a lot of negative too. And then let's talk about where they are now. And then I'm going to bring it all back with a really, really smart viral take to market strategy that made all this happen. But first, I want to I want to walk you through the story. And then I'm going to show you what actually let them achieve such massive growth. So first, let's talk about fintech, financial technology, financial uh, technology or fintech is a rapidly expanding industry. We're talking about crypto, we're talking about Robinhood, we're talking about all these new financial vehicles and instruments and apps that are letting people approach finance differently. Fintech companies are focused on adapting their products according to the preferences of a younger generation and demographic. We're talking simplicity, user-friendliness, transparency. These are the guiding principles of fintech apps that just crush it. And a company that's been successfully doing this is Robinhood. Robinhood was one of the first. Now, there's a lot of fintech apps, but Robinhood was one of the 
first that really focused on these three guiding principles being the the things that get a younger generation excited about finance. Robinhood uh, is leading the modernization of investments because it offers everyone equal opportunity to participate in financial markets. And before Robinhood, it wasn't so easy. You had, there were a few options, but you could have some sort of uh, broker, you could go to a waterhouse, you could go to a variety of different places that would allow you to invest, but it definitely wasn't as simple as picking up your phone, opening an app and investing from the comfort of your couch. There was steps to this. And also some of the ways that you could invest required a lot of capital. So some people wouldn't even talk to you unless you were investing X amount of dollars. So Robinhood is getting rid, disrupting that entire system, totally democratizing finance and investment vehicles. So let's talk about the founders. Let's talk about, let's go way, way, way back. So two Stanford graduates. I know it's kind of a little bit classic startup story, but anyways, two Stanford graduates, uh, Beju Bat, Vladimir Tenev, they founded the company. So following their experience in the in them trying to invest, they decided that they could do it better. And they started Robinhood uh, in Menlo Park, California. This is obviously a very, very popular uh, startup spot. So this is a little bit traditional. This is, you know, classic Silicon Valley. Uh, the name Robinhood was drawn from the fairy tale. In Robinhood, the fairy tale, you know, the main character's mission is to steal from the wealthy, give to the poor. Well, a slight spin on this. So Robinhood was to give access to financial markets to anyone, not just the wealthy. Um, and since Robinhood's launch in 2013, it's been quite evident that consumers find value in their product. They just IPO'd. So they've been in the news a lot recently. They just IPO'd at a $35 billion valuation. So there's definitely a product market fit there. There's a need for this. So Robinhood users during 2015, so two years after it launched, were over 80% millennial, on average 26 years old. So as a result, founders proved out their thesis that young people were not opposed to participating in financial markets. It was just that their wealth or their access or their knowledge or the the cumbersome nature of the existing systems in place stop them from truly being able to access investment channels. So the reason why Robinhood was so successful was because first of all, it was building an app in the fintech space, allowing anybody to invest in anything, but also they had a very interesting business model. So Robinhood began as a platform for trading stocks and ETFs. Uh, the Robinhood platform offered this feature without charging users a commission fee, which is strange. So in response to the growing subscriber numbers, not the revenue, the company was able to raise significant amounts of money and venture capital. Let's just pause on that for a second. So what a lot of companies, not a lot, but some companies do is they'll focus on getting critical mass and they'll focus on attracting hundreds of thousands or millions of customers and then, and they will be not profitable. They will not be making money. This is something that happens in startup land. So they will not be making money. They'll be getting a lot of subscribers. They will usually be getting those subscribers at a discount, and then they'll be attracting venture capital money to allow them to grow. And the venture capital money is the money that is actually sustaining the company. And as the company grows, there will be a point in the company's future when they'll try and incorporate a more heavy-handed revenue model so that they can become profitable. One example that you're seeing this with right now that we're actually living through is Uber. So Uber, originally, they basically artificially lowered the prices so that they would get a ton of 
people, so hundreds of millions of people on the app, and now they're trying to be profitable. So if you've noticed your Uber rides are getting a little bit more expensive, well, now shareholders are asking for some sort of profitability. Um, other companies that are not profitable, if I'm not mistaken, Netflix is not profitable yet. Uber was not profitable for the longest time, and I don't even know if they are now. So this is not new, but it's something that companies do just to win business from the start, from the get-go. But regardless, let's go back to Robinhood. So Robinhood has a huge growing subscriber base. They are not charging fees for these trades. They're not charging commission fees. And they derived revenue from payments for order flow. So they got rebates from market makers and trading venues. They they used those rebates as revenue, basically. Now, this was much different than the old system of collecting brokerage fees. So this business model was truly revolutionary. And to expand the company's consumer base and generate more uh, revenue streams, they did eventually add on a subscription model, which I'll talk about in a second. But for a long time, they were really disruptive because they were charging absolutely nothing. And if you think about the traditional broker that would allow you to buy stocks and trade and whatnot, they charge fees. So they charge a significant percentage on every single trade. So it costs a lot of money for an individual to buy something. So Robinhood got away with most fees. Now, in 2016, they did offer a $10 per month subscription plan, which still was way less than what a traditional broker would charge. So in 2016, they launched this uh, subscription model. They charged $10 for a monthly fee for the subscription. This would allow users to upgrade to a a quote-unquote complete Robinhood platform. And what the gold subscribers, that it was called Robinhood Gold, what the gold subscribers would get on top of just being able to trade, which already was not, there was no charge for those trades. Gold subscribers had access to professional research reports. They can trade on margin uh, and they can deposit money instantly from their trading accounts. So they added on a whole bunch of other things that brokerages usually do for still a relatively low fee. Again, very, very disruptive. Um, Now, if you actually use Robinhood, uh, it's available at a much lower price at $5 per month. So it wasn't even something they were depending on for revenue. In addition, uh, Robinhood's cash management services allowed users to have uninvested funds from their brokerage account managed by the company, offering a higher yield than most banks. So FDIC insurance is also available for accounts with managed funds of up to 1.25 million, meaning if you just had money on Robinhood and you weren't even invested in any stocks or ETFs or anything else, you could just let that money sit there and they would manage that money for you and invest it and they would give you a higher return than any bank would usually ever give you. Um, And as Robinhood grew, they started to engage in other interesting fintech ecosystems, let's call it. So they started to work with crypto. So that was the most recent product from Robinhood where they realized their target market, their audience, their subscriber cares about new age forward thinking financial tools, which cryptocurrency is obviously one of them. So they allowed their audience to invest in crypto. And that was a new financial market that most traditional brokers largely ignored. So as a result, Robinhood, again, was able to to present a new opportunity to a key demographic they cared about that was their subscriber base in a way that was non-complicated, uh, very user-friendly, and provided a little bit of safety compared to some cryptocurrency exchanges that perhaps didn't have the same infrastructure or security behind them. So they tailor, again, to somebody who wants to get into markets, but you don't have to be a developer or somebody highly technical to use Robinhood and feel safe. For example, one thing they did, which uh, allowed people to feel a little bit more comfortable 
uncomfortable about their cryptocurrency purchases was to protect their users from drastic price changes. So Robinhood actually restricts purchases uh, to 1% and sales to 5%. Uh, this prevents orders from being executed if a cryptocurrency price radically changes over or below 5%. So of course, with safety becomes comes limitations and some people don't like that. But for the person who isn't technical or isn't as aware of how volatile crypto markets is, this is a safety, this is a safety tool that can actually benefit them. And taking steps like this was one of the most attractive things for young investors who were just trying to learn how to invest. Again, you have a lot of young people on the platform and, and Robinhood time and time again, demonstrates its ability to think like a consumer and act in a way that meets its users evolving needs, unlike traditional brokerages or traditional investment institutions that are very, very slow to react. Now, as the platform matures, more people are using it. Of course, it's a financial tool, which means that it is under a lot of scrutiny when things don't work well. And that's something that we have to take into consideration as well as we're talking about Robinhood's story because it wasn't all positive. So up until March of 2020, it was very positive. On March 2nd of 2020, Robinhood experienced a massive service outage on one of the most intense trading days in the history of the U.S. financial markets. The outage, unfortunately, lasted for an entire day, causing massive damage to its users. It was so bad that several uh, media outlets said that this would be the downfall of the fintech giant. However, outrage did fade and Robinhood rebounded quickly. Uh, To point to some numbers, by 2020, end of 2020, the firm uh, proved to maintain market share above 50% for all net new brokerage accounts opened in the US, which is more than all incumbent legacy brokerage firms combined. More than 3 million Robinhood accounts were opened in the first half of 2020 alone. And as Robinhood now grows and in 2021 now it's IPO'd, we also have to consider the ethical responsibility of being the incumbent, the main investment brokerage tool that now people use. So for example, we have to consider the fact that the company is obligated to its users to provide and maintain solid, consistent information for storing all the data, protecting user data, and also to monitor markets and to make sure there's uptime because people's money is invested here, as well as monitor cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency markets. There's a lot of things that are moving that Robinhood has to keep up with, which means there has to be some smart people that are keeping up with these things and are focused on delivering the best technology and the most secure technology for one of the largest investment vehicles that now probably has like several, several, several billion dollars of assets under management and in all seriousness could be responsible for the livelihoods and retirements of many individuals. One ethical dilemma that stemmed from Robinhood's growth and massive scaling over the past couple years was that it it's giving financial power to individuals who may not understand what some of the things that it offers are. So I'll give you one story. So in 2020, Robinhood had a, an ethical issue involving the suicide of a 20-year-old man. He opened his account during the COVID pandemic. He thought he had lost over $700,000 by trading on the platform. His account showed a minus $700,000. However, after they investigated, the user had not suffered losses that size, but the Robinhood app had not included the stock's option positions. So as a result, the young man ended his life due to a misunderstanding caused by a delay in seeing the correct uh, account balance on the application. So there is controversy whether or not Robinhood is at fault in the situation. On one hand, they're opening markets and they're opening opportunity and they're giving opportunity to people that normally wouldn't have had it before. But on the other hand, with that opportunity becomes, they're, 
there's a lot of risk involved because now you're giving people financial freedom to invest as they see fit. Yet over all of this, over all of the ups and downs, the massive growth, some of the uh, regulatory concerns, some of the uh, outages, some of the ethical concerns, Robinhood has still maintained its position as one of the number one tools and instruments for people who are interested in investments. And it is continuing to grow year over year. And I do not see the user base switching to a legacy brokerage firm just because Robinhood is always focused on those three core tenets that we talked about at the beginning, that usability, the simplicity, and the affordability of the platform. And then just recently, if we fast forward to present day Robinhood, they've just IPO'd at a $35 billion valuation. So I can't see them slowing down anytime soon. Now, after this incredible success, I do want to take a second and walk through three particular things that Robinhood did well outside of all the tech and all the UI, UX, um, all the things they've navigated over their growth. There are three particular things they did extremely well when they were taking their product to market back in 2013 that are notable things that are lessons that you have to learn from this story that maybe you can apply to your own business. So there were three growth lessons from Robinhood's take-to-market strategy or take-to-market playbook that allowed it to secure over a million customers before they even had a product. And that cascaded through Robinhood's life cycle to to the $35 billion IPO. So I want to go through these three growth lessons from the Robinhood story. And I haven't spoken about these yet. So the first, when they were taking their product to market back in 2013, was FOMO. They used FOMO. They used a private beta invite-only sign-up list to get people to want to sign up before they even had a product. They had a landing page with a sign-up, with a form that allowed you to sign up for a private beta. They pushed a massive PR campaign around the private beta, which was picked up by major news outlets, cementing hundreds of thousands of initial customers before they even had a work product. And if you ever wanted to run something like this, you're setting up a website and then use something like a Newswire or a Presley or PressHunt.io to get the word out and just drive people to a private beta. FOMO works. People want to be part of something exclusive. The second thing they did was they gamified the onboarding experience. So after you signed up, Robinhood created a referral-based onboarding process that offered rewards and prizes for joining the beta. So after you signed up, you were presented with a graphic that showed how many people were on a waiting list ahead of you. Once on the waiting list, you had options to share a certain affiliate link that was unique to you that would actually move you ahead on the waiting list. So if somebody else joined the Robinhood beta by clicking your link in an email, or if you posted this on social and somebody clicked on your social post and signed up for the beta, you would be bumped up in the waiting list. So you would get there ahead of time. This led to exponential growth, numbering in the millions of subscribers before the product even went live. So not only did they have a private beta, but then they gamified the access to the private beta and allowed you to share it and create this viral loop around the private beta. And then lastly, the most important, oh, actually, you know what? One more thing on that. If you if you want to do this yourself and you don't want to code it, there's actually a tool that you can use that's out of the box called prefinery.com. There's probably a few more, but that's the one that I've seen work and do this for companies. You can go there. You can set up your own viral affiliate uh, take-to-market private beta program, very similar to what Robinhood did. And lastly, the third thing that allowed them to get over a million customers before they even had a product was simplicity in their sign-up process. So the number one problem the companies have when they're creating 
any sort of sign up or onboarding for their product or service or their hardware or whatever it is, uh, is they make it too confusing, too conflated. We're talking about the onboarding that got them a million plus customers. For this onboarding, they had that page, remember, that had that private beta access where you put in your, you know, your name and your email and you got you got pushed into this line for private beta access. That page, they removed all the text from that page, from that web page, and they made the call to action as straightforward as possible. On that page that they were trying to get people to sign up to the private beta on, they had the text that read Robinhood, $0 commission stock trading, stop paying up to $10 per trade. And then the only button they had on that page was one that said opt in to get early access. That's it. That's it said. That's all it said. There was a picture of somebody on a phone, uh, sort of like behind the text. So it was like a nice little image. But that's all the text that was on that landing page. So when people hit that landing page, there was no other option. There was no more reading about Robinhood. There was no more understanding about the team. There was no more looking at all the different features and getting distracted. It was that sentence, email capture, and a button. And that's it. And that combined with FOMO, combined with gamifying, blew up their waiting list so that they had over a million customers subscribe before they even launched a product. And then that is what kicked off this incredible story, this incredible growth story. So Robinhood has always been focused on making things as simple as possible for customers. So it only makes sense that the onboarding fell in line with that prerogative. So take some notes, that virality, gamification, FOMO, simplicity, that equals your billion dollar IPO. Anyways, that's the story of Robinhood. That's how they started. That's how they grew, scaled up, 10x, more than 10x actually, IPO'd. And I hope that gave you some inspiration for your business. I want to take a second and thank Indeed. They're a huge sponsor of the Success Story podcast. And as business leaders, we're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. It's to match with Indeed. Now, if you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. You need to ditch the busy work. You need to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster all the tools you need are in one spot. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite. Now, as a business owner, I always remember when my company hits a growth spurt. It's great, but then you realize that things start to break. Things are taking three times as long. Manual processes start to bury your team in paperwork and admin, and you really don't have one reliable source of data or truth to understand how healthy your business is. If this sounds familiar, you have to know three numbers. 37,000, That's how many businesses have upgraded to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years streamlining accounting, inventory, HR, and more for growing companies. And one, because your business truly is one of a kind, 
NetSuite gives you customized solutions so you can manage everything about your business in one place, from inventory to invoicing, one powerfully efficient system. I love having all of my data in one spot. NetSuite allows me to do that. It gives me the big picture so I can make smarter decisions. And they turn complex financials into understandable, actionable insights. Right now, you can get NetSuite's popular KPI checklist for free to help improve your business. It's designed to help you boost performance across key areas of your business. Go to netsuite.com slash scottclary to download the checklist and see how one complete system can transform your growth. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Get more control in your business with NetSuite. Just a quick question. Have you ever had one of those oh no moments when you realize that you accidentally deleted a huge file or worse, your whole computer dies. I know I have. It's happened to me a lot, but don't sweat it. The sponsor of today's episode, Backblaze, they have your back. It is unlimited backups for all your Macs, your PCs, or even your whole company, and it's really affordable, under 100 bucks a year. If you're running a business, they take the stress out of protecting everyone's data. If you need more bells and whistles for compliance, so on and so forth, they have enterprise options too. Honestly, losing data sucks, but Backblaze makes getting it back easy. They have restored billions of files. They offer tons of restore options, including rapid recovery in an event of data loss or ransomware. And you can access your backed up data from everywhere and anywhere in the world using their web app, iOS, or Android apps. It's been recommended by the New York Times, Inc., Macworld, PC World, LifeWire, Wired, Tom's Guide, 9to5Mac, and tons more. And best, you can try it fully featured with no risk at backblaze.com story. They set up that link for all Success Story podcast listeners. That is a no-risk free trial at backblaze.com slash story. Seriously, back up your stuff. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all success story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. 
This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. 